Well, the three-minute break is over, so I'm going to ask everybody to find their seats. No? <laughs> we are studying Jonah, so I guess rebellion is a part of today's uh, whole sermon. You know? If there's anybody in the room who struggles with rebellion, it's the guy who's speaking to you right now. So, you know, I, yeah, you know. So, it's not the tattoos. <laughs> it's this thing right inside of me right here that beats, and it's this thing inside my head. That's the problem. I think about the words of Jesus. It's not what goes into the body that defiles it, right? It, what, it's what comes out, <laughs> And the wisdom literature, I am, I am willing to bet dollars to dimes that he's quoting the, the wisdom literature of Proverbs. Out from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? <laughs> and so it, it, it doesn't take a genius. It's not rocket science to figure out that you can look at me, uh, you know, in the long hair, and, and you can think, man, but some of the most sanctified people that I've ever met are the ones that don't look like they are. And some of the most unsanctified people that I've met dress it up in a suit and tie on Sunday mornings and come to church week after week. So if the shoe fits, I'm sorry. <laughs> so as I was saying before the three-minute break, we're getting ready to close out our series on the book of Jonah. And we're in Jonah chapter 4. And Jonah chapter 4 is kind of like the book of Job, or kind of like the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, it has left people spellbound, silent, and contemplative, like contemplating what is going on here? Because it doesn't offer you an answer. Two open-ended questions in Jonah chapter 4 that go unanswered. And so this morning, you know, I was talking to James last night. I was talking to Art Anderson uh, during the week. And I was like, you know, I really want us as a body to study the word together. That's my heart's desire. Not for me to stand up here and for me to tell you how to think or for me to tell you how to read the Bible, but to really engage your hearts and minds and have you re-engage with me while we're studying the word of God together. And so I want to make sure that we are going to, for a moment, we're going to kind of nerd out a little bit on this thing that I think is pretty cool, but I don't want to make the sermon about what Matt thinks is cool. I want to make the sermon about what God wants us to hear today. And so what I think is cool is, is absolutely intrinsically connected to how we read and study the Bible. And I think that as your pastor and as your teacher, it's my job to make sure that we're at least equipped to do that, okay? And uh, it's interesting because so often we come to the Bible and we read it and we just think that everything is organized. Everything fits nicely, and there's like this box that's wrapped with paper and a bow is set on top. And it's like, it, it just, it can't get any easier than this, right? And I don't know, that's not my life. I mean, the gospel is simple to understand, but the text of Scripture is very difficult to study. And Jonah chapter 4 
fits that description right there. And so let's turn our attention to the screen and let's read through the entirety of Jonah chapter 4 together. Our author begins in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat in it, uh, sorry, he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. It's an interesting chapter. Obviously, it's broken into two sections. And I, the first thing I want us to do this morning as we're thinking about the text of Jonah is I want us to think, how critically do we think about time when we come to the text of Scripture? Is time important? I would say yes. Is chronology more important than theology in the mind of our authors? No, it's not. So theology takes a priority over chronology, but we wouldn't say that chronology is not important. We would just say that there is a higher value on the theology in what is being expressed in the text of Scripture. So, I want us to look at this together, and I want us to think about time this morning. Okay, you've got your timeline here. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible 
for Nineveh and its people within the city to have a separate experience from Jonah while he is outside the city at the same exact time. It is. Now, if Jonah is outside the city, he's unaware of the experience that Nineveh is having inside the city because he's outside of it, right? We all on the same page? Everybody tracking? And vice versa for the Ninevites and Jonah being out, right? This orange line, what do you think this orange line represents? Huh? No, no, you've got Nineveh and its people here above the timeline. You've got Jonah and his experience outside the city under the timeline. What do you think the ark is? It's God. It's God. Why is it God? Because, because God exists outside of time and above time. So while Nineveh is having their experience within the city, and Jonah is having his experience outside of the city, God sees all of it. He's aware of all that is happening. Nothing slips his attention. Nothing gets past him. Now, let's turn our attention to the book of Jonah and let's ask our question, is theology greater than chronology in the mind of the author? We all said yes. When is the last time we saw Jonah in the book of Jonah? Answers are on the screen, so feel free to speak up. There you go. So turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. I should for the adults for sure because they can eat candy whenever they want, unlike the kids. <laughs> Great idea. Almond joys. We'll have the chocolate section and the gummy section. And then, we'll be, then we'll be all right. All right, Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. We talked about this in our last study. Jonah put at best minimal effort for up to and no more than 24 hours in the city of Nineveh. That's it. That's what the text says. Notice that Jonah falls off the pages of Scripture throughout the rest of chapter 3, and we find out what happens with Nineveh between Jonah's proclamation and the end of the 40 days. How do we know that? Look at 3.10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So on the timeline, from Jonah chapter 3, verse 4 through 10, we see what happens in Nineveh, and in verse 5 through 10, we specifically see what happens with Nineveh and its people within the city. 
Chapter 4 is so interesting. Because you actually need to jump to Jonah chapter 4 verse 5 if you want chronology. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. (laughs) So Jonah goes east of the city And he's waiting to see what's going to happen. Well, what's up with these first four verses in chapter 4? If they happened after verse 5 through 11. How do we know they happened after verse 5 through 11? Think about what you read in 310 and then read verse 5. One of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. How can he be angry if he's not yet sure what is yet to happen? <laughs> when verse 5 tells us he literally walked out of the city, pitched his tent, and waited and watched. You see how the author is willing to break chronology for the sake of theology, these first four verses in chapter four are key to understanding the object lesson that Jonah's gonna get in verse five through 11. And if you don't have the theology that you understand and that you get and you grasp in the first four verses, you will miss the object lesson. The technical term for what I'm describing in English grammar is the verb tense of words that are pluperfect. Everyone say pluperfect. Has anybody ever heard that word before? Okay, so we learned something new today. What are these verbs? Well, Jonah went, past tense, out of the city. He sat, past tense, He made, past tense, and he sat in what he made or under it till he should see what would become of the city. All of those are past tense. And so those verbs are pluperfect. Now before you're like, whoa, Matt's mixing up the Bible here, and I don't think that this is cool, and he's taking you know, something that functions in the English grammar and composition world, and he's applying it to the Bible, just push pause, Go read John Calvin's commentary on the book of Jonah. It's not an easy read. It's not a fun read. And I don't think that he gets much of it right. But I'll tell you what, John Calvin thought that there was a pluperfect experience in chapter 3. So even as early as the Reformation, seeing these things and noticing and talking about these things and prior to the Reformation has been a thing in biblical studies. Now we need to know that it's okay that the Bible is not focused on chronology. In our Western world, if you tell a story and you don't get the chronology right, people tear you apart because we're so interested in the details and in the minutiae. But the Hebrew authors are worried less about that to convey the truth behind the heart of God. 
And so they're not sacrificing anything on an altar for the sake of manipulation or for the sake of trying to skew the details. This would be what goes without being said in their culture that it would be okay to do this, and we need to be aware of that. Okay? So theology trumps chronology. And so we're going to read the letter the way the author wrote it, but as we come to study the Bible, we need to be aware that, oh, this is actually in a state of chronological disorder. Now, what is the author doing in presenting a historical, uh-oh, Jonah's history, right? And now the author's got his chronology out of order. Is it truly history? I'll leave that in your lap to think about. But the deal is, if you're trying to focus on those things, you're going to miss the main point. When you don't make the main thing the main thing, you're in the weeds. You're going to miss the forest for the trees. Okay? All right, so let's turn our attention to the text and let's think about what it is that the author is trying to do. Jonah chapter 1. I'm just going to read the opening section in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Stop. What displeased Jonah exceedingly? Why is he so angry? Why is his heart stirred? What's going on? Oh, remember, this falls at the end of the 40 days, not prior to the end of the 40 days. So chapter 3, verse 10 gives us the context for why Jonah is so pissed off. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah has now waited. The required time has passed. Nineveh was not made to look like Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah is angry. Notice the irony in this passage. Okay? The irony is so thick, if I had a knife, I could cut it. We're going to start at a very near view, and we're going to back out to a far view here, okay? The catalyst for, for quenching the wrath of God was the catalyst for kindling the fire of Jonah's anger. You think Jonah's in sync with Yahweh right now? It's important to recognize that his attitude needs correction. Okay? And he prayed to the Lord. Oh, stop. <laughs> this is the second time Jonah prayed. Anybody remember how his first prayer went? I, me, my a mockery and a twisting of the Scriptures. Anybody think this prayer can be any different? And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Stop. Turn in your Bibles back to Jonah chapter 1. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Anybody notice Jonah speaking? Okay, let's keep reading. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah said anything? He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah spoken yet? It seemed like Jonah's telling the truth. Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Anybody see Jonah speaking to God in the text of Scripture? Okay, so it would be conjecture to argue that he had this conversation with God. We do know that the text of Scripture is descriptive and it's not exhaustive and this could be something that was withheld. We've seen that in chapter 2. I'm sorry, in chapter 1 when the storm was raging and the men were hurling the cargo out of the ship to lighten the load. Jonah was fast asleep. The captain found him, told him to pray as they were praying. The sea just got rougher and rougher. He said, pick me up and throw me in. But the men rode harder. When they cast lots, though, before all of this, the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. These men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So here we have an example of what's called an information gap. In the close of verse 10, the author or the narrator tells us that the men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. But we didn't find that out earlier on in the story. So he held this detail back until it was a clutch moment for him to deliver it. And then he delivered the detail, saying, oh, the sailors and the captain were already aware of this. So where do you think Jonah had this conversation? Maybe while he was buying the ticket? Commissioning the boat? Getting on board a Biblos ship to sail west to Tarshish when God told him to go east to Nineveh? And they're like, Taking a vacation as if that's a thing? And he goes, no, I'm fleeing from the presence of Yahweh. And they're like, eh, not our God. Jump on, take his money. We'll get him where he needs to go. So the question could be posed here, except there's one detail that we need to be aware of. In chapter 1, it is the narrator who tells us the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord 
because he had told them. And it's Jonah's claim in chapter 4, verse 2, that he actually prayed. Taking into account Jonah's character, you think he's telling the truth? That's a decision for you to make. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. (laughs) Therefore now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Anybody know where this quote comes from? That Jonah is taking out of the Torah and putting into his prayer? You are gracious, steadfast, full of compassion, relenting from disaster. Anybody know where that comes from? Think about Mount Sinai. Think about Moses. And when he asks God to show me your glory, and he says, I'm going to have to tuck you in the rock, bro. (laughs) And as I pass by you, I'll show you the afterburn of my glory. And as God passes by him, what does he announce? These very words. So it's as if Jonah is trying to hold God hostage with his own character and nature. So he's pissed at God's extension of grace and mercy. He's lied about praying and speaking to God. And he's twisting the Scripture in an attempt to hold God hostage. right yes so what we're finding out is this is standard operating procedure for the prophet of God oh man (laughs) Lord help us and you wonder why Israel was always struggling Now here's the deal. The irony of Jonah and his rejection of God's mercy on the city and the people and the animals of Nineveh is ridiculous. Anybody remember what happened in chapter 2 in the life of Jonah? What did they do at the end of chapter 1? Tossed him into the sea. What did God do? He ordained a big fish to deliver Jonah so that he wouldn't drown. Is Jonah a recipient 
of the very grace and mercy of God that he is so angry Nineveh has received. Absolutely. It's ironic, right? That the man of God, the prophet of God, the one who God speaks to, the one who, 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 who is God's called emissary, could do something like this could be a recipient of the very grace and mercy of God poured out on him in his life. And then when God extends that very same grace and mercy to someone else, he's like, no! And I'm like, oh, I've done that so many times in my life. I'm just like Tuna. Lord, help me. You understand why these first four verses have to precede the object lesson? Because God is communicating the intrinsic value of his character and his nature, and he's pitting it against our character and our nature. Who do you want to be like? I don't want to be like Jonah. But so often I find myself engaging in behavior. My mental cognition is no different. My heart posture is no different, and my actions are no different. Well, this person wants to take a stand against me, all right, I'm going to park it right here. I'm going to pray for God to bring justice. And I want justice for them without mercy. But Lord, I'll take you, see. Oh, it's a hard, hard mirror to look at reading the book of Jonah in chapter 4. So here we are. Jonah's greatly displeased. It's funny because the Hebrew says that his anger burned hot within him. Think you're going to find any symbolism of something burning hot against Jonah in the follow-on experience that we're about to read? Oh, it's there. It's going to come straight from God. That east wind. So it's interesting, you know? Jonah is willing to die. He would rather die than live in a world where God's grace and mercy are universally applied to humanity. And the Lord said, I love this. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let me speak to the fathers in the room for a second. How often does your heart reflect the heart of God when discipline needs to be extended to your children? Are you, like God, willing to be gentle and patient and ask a simple question in the face of the rebellion that you're experiencing with your children? Or do you fly off the handle and try to squash them like the bug that you think that they are? Walking like Jonah when you should be walking like the master. How does the Lord deal with the rebellious prophet? Does he smite him? Does he exercise his authority over him because he's God? And he can? Or does he engage him in a patiently 
loving and gracious manner from a foundation of kindness where he believes the question that he's asking can reveal the child value. And in that moment, through compassion and grace and mercy, bring direction. Or is it always the hard heavy? The same thing goes to moms too. What's the heart of God in the midst of discipline? You need an example? Read Jonah chapter 4. Do you do well to be angry? Ask yourself that the next time you've got to discipline your children. Because if you're disciplining your children and your foundation is anger, you are sinning. But if you are disciplining your children and you are doing it from a heart of compassion that desires to see correction, then you are walking in the footsteps of the master. Now, we talked about Jonah and his fibbing about praying to the Lord while he was yet in his country. Silence was the prophet. Silent was the prophet, right? Silence was his composure. And it was his silence that depicted his rebellion against the Creator. Silence in verse 4. Do you think that Jonah has learned his lesson? So you think God's going to turn the corner and crush him now? Because he didn't learn when I asked him the question the first time? You stupid man! So now I'm going to smash you. You know? No. That's not how God responds. And it's about to become very clear that the thing that Jonah is trying to hold God uh, captive with, his own, his own character and his own nature, that's going to be the very thing that God displays in an authentic manner. Can't have nice things around here because I just throw other people. Like the kids. <laughs> I opened my sermon with the heart of rebellion, right? <laughs> I'm speaking. <laughs> this I've got to start all over. All over. We wind it, we're going to march all the way through what we just did.
Levitical branch of yep. It would have been the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, anyone who was connected to the same people. So we and so we see that comparison that that, that mindset still has to be weeded out and by Jesus and his words of the and it needs to be weeded out of us, which yes. is why we're studying mm -hmm. today. This is how we know the letter of uh, the book of Jonah was written to national Israel because that is the context of correction. But how does the context of correction for them apply to us? And, and as, as I've, I've been preaching, preaching, I can see people's countenance just dropping, like, oh man, I, he's speaking straight to me. Actually, there's a mirror. <laughs> you just can't see it. And I really enjoy yelling at myself because it's like, I don't hear so well, you know. I'm about as hard and thick as this thing right here. You know, so, so these first four verses is where we get the theology laid out for us. Jonah, you are going to try to hold me captive with a twisting of what you think is a reflection of me. I'm actually going to display my character and nature for you, hoping that you don't miss what it is that I'm trying to say, because words sometimes speak louder, or actions sometimes speak louder than words. Now, can you think of a prophet who put on a display in his life for the people of Israel so that they might see him and then learn the lesson from what they're watching? Yep, yep, Hosea. Daniel is made uh, much of in his expression of going into the lion's den and his expression of going up to his room and praying and being pious for sure. The things with like Hosea, right? Him physically having to pursue a woman who is in prostitution, you know? Jeremiah uh, carrying a yoke, right? Um, Isaiah walking around naked, the, the text tells us. For years, right? Like, Israel, you're exposed before God. <laughs> and then Ezekiel, I mean, he did a lot of things, right? Like he laid on one side for many, many days. He clipped his hair and he burned some and he threw some to the wind and I think he kept some. Right? Jeremiah with the dirty, soiled loincloth. Like, so God is in the business of using everyday interactions and things that unfold in our lives to teach us lessons. So the question is, are we consciously looking for what it is that God is trying to teach us in our daily experience? Because God speaks through our daily experience no different than we're going to see him speaking in the life of Jonah's daily experience or in the lives of any of the prophets' daily experience. And think about this. If you're missing it and someone's watching you, chances are they're going to miss it too. So be in tune for the Word of God and try to pursue the will of God by the Spirit of God, okay? So here we are. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. The Hebrew word here is sukkah, and it's supposed to bring us back to their celebration for the Feast of Tabernacles because when they were in the desert, God told them to set up a shelter and to live in that for the... For the uh, in, to endure the time of the festival. And so Jonah would be accustomed to making something like this in the desert, in the wilderness, just like they would year after year, just like his ancestors would have, right? But I want us to look at something. Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh in chapter 1. 
And instead of being obedient, he went all the way over here, or he attempted to, to the end of the known world at the time, Tarshish. Right? That was an act of rebellion. He's proclaimed the Word of God in Nineveh at this point. Right? Now that he's proclaimed the Word of God, minimum effort, right? One day at best. Instead of returning home to the presence of the Lord in Israel, he flees east once again. Because in his rebellion, he wants to be nowhere near God. So the same heart of rebellion that Jonah's got in chapter 1 is the same heart of rebellion that Jonah's got in chapter 4. I don't know how you can think that at any point in this letter, at some time, Jonah was reformed. No. <laughs> We're going to look at the letter, the book in its entirety. <laughs> We're not going to say that he had an upswing at one moment and immediately backslid the next. <laughs> oh, but Matt, that happens in our lives. Yeah, but that's not what the author's trying to communicate here. I think, that he was, I think that he was trying to die in the sea in chapter 1 so that he did not have to do the will of God and be obedient to the Word of God. Just throw me overboard, he said. But he told them who he served, and he knows the Psalms. He could have immediately, like David said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Your ways, God, not my ways. I repent and I'll pay the ship to turn and bring me back. Do you think the storm would have ceased? Absolutely. He is gracious and compassionate and turning from the disaster. Jonah knows this. So he's like flipping birds <laughs> at you-know-who, and he's like, throw me into the water. And God's like, mm -mm. <laughs> I've got a plan. And that's what I want to make as an observation here. We could call this section, Jonah 4, 5 through 11, God appointed. Just as God appointed the fish to deliver Jonah, and just as it's not important what type of fish it was and how Jonah stayed alive, because it's not about the fish, this section is not about the plant, not about the worm, and it's not about the east wind. It's about the heart of God. And so we need to stay focused on that as we walk our way through this. Jonah went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city. This is symbolic um, imagery in word that we're reading. When Cain killed Abel and God banished him, he went east. When the people were uh, leaving the, where the ark landed post-deluge and flood, and they were traveling, they were traveling east, and they stopped and they began to build the Tower of Babel. And when Lot left Abraham, he chose to go east to Sodom. You think that the audience is aware of all of these details? You think we need to be aware of all of these details? So when it says Jonah went east of the city, we can go... Just like the ancestors. <laughs> He's learned nothing. And then we turn and catch the mirror and we're like, ah, so often God has been gracious with me and my behavior and my mindset and my heart posture shows that I too, like Jonah, have learned nothing. 
So Jonah went out of the city, to sat, and he sat east of the city. He made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah has built his shelter outside of the city because he doesn't want to be destroyed in the city if God will repent of his repentance. Right? And so that's what Jonah's hoping. Jonah's hoping that God will repent of his repentance. Remember, he relented and did not bring the disaster against Nineveh that he intended to do. He turned. That's the word, nasham. Just as they turned from their evil, God turned from the disaster. And so here we are, and we're looking, and Jonah's sitting in the shade of the hut that he's built. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Stop. Jonah's shelter, God is already communicating that the things that you're doing are insignificant. You need my help. Your effort doesn't even get a star. You need me, Jonah. And so Jonah goes to sleep. We don't know how much time has passed, but we know what the text says. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I can't stand reading stuff like this. Like homies bipolar. He's pissed. He's displeased. In 4.1, Jonah is, uh, sees what God is doing as evil, right? That word is ra'ah in the Hebrew. And so Nineveh turned from their evil, ra'ah, and God relented from the disaster or the calamity, ra'ah, that he would bring against Nineveh. And Jonah in chapter 4 is ra'ah at God. It's like everybody's relenting of their evil except Jonah. <laughs> like a toddler or a grown man, you know, standing on stage preaching to you. <laughs> now the Lord God appointed the plants. So he's showing Jonah that his effort, even at best, is not going to cut it. That it might shade him to save him from discomfort. Remember, this is a rebellious prophet. What's the heart of the Father here? It's grace and mercy and compassion. Grace and mercy and compassion. But when the dawn came up the next day, oh, here we go. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. All right, so what has been a theme throughout Jonah? The great city, the great storm, the great fish. This city, Nineveh, which is great to me, over and over and over. We're going to see it again in the end here. And what does God send? A tiny little worm. <laughs> oh, man. The sovereignty of God and the authority of God. Jonah is in the school of creation. Just as Jack Black heads the school of rock, Jonah, it, Yahweh is the headmaster in the school of creation. He's not the headmaster in the movie, but he should be. 
<laughs> He's the only one who cares about the kids, you know? Trying, I'm trying. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and it attacked the plant. This is a military term, attacked. It devastated. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Clear skies, a hot wind, and no more shade. And he asked that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. Look at the question that God asks in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? It's the same question with a little twist. Before God asked him if he did well to be angry at God for God's decision. But now God is asking him if he's angry about the plant. We're going to find another little lie here, by the way. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's not angry that the plant's dead. Jonah doesn't care about 120,000 human beings who are living in Nineveh. He's angry that the shade has ceased in his life and now he's uncomfortable. He could care less about the plant that God provided. He still hasn't learned a single thing. I could do well, well enough to die. I could care less about what you've created, Lord. It's all about me and my comfort. And God is like, oh, my son. And listen to him. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God is showing him, I know you don't care about the plant. I cared enough to make it grow. I brought it into its being. I brought it into its existence. I tended it. You did nothing. You benefited from it. I also care for the cattle. If I care for the plant, if I care for the cattle, don't you think I should care for the people? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. In the beginning, right? Genesis starts, and you get to the crescendo. He created them, male and female, in his Jonah couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. He missed the forest for the trees. His heart was hard. His emotions got the best of him. And in the end, we don't know if he actually turned to God or not. That's a warning, church. That's a warning. He has been rebellious from beginning to end. If you're going to take into account his character and nature and then ask yourself, 
Did Jonah repent? You're already in the weeds. God is speaking to you in his message about the prophet. Your job is not to wonder if Jonah has repented. Your job is like my job. It is to read this and to see that God has a lot of work to do in my heart as he has to do in your heart. And the question is, are you going to run away or are you going to run to? We have two prophets in the text of Scripture. One stands outside of a city, building a shelter, praying in his anger, hoping that God will destroy the city and its people. We have another prophet who stands outside the city that is about to crucify him, and he weeps over that city. And he says, Father, so often I have tried. Do we see God trying in the book of Jonah as he pursues his prophet? His character and his nature is the same today as it was in the book of Jonah, and his character and nature is the same today as he stood on that hill and he looked at Jerusalem and he wept with compassion for those who were going to crucify him. What's it going to be, church? You going to live your life like Jonah? Or are you going to live your life like Jesus? It's a hard question. Everybody in here can think of somebody who's wronged them. Everybody in here can think of somebody who has taken a stand against them. Are we, like Jonah, looking past the image of God in others and reducing the complexity of the human being down to what they have done in the past? Or are we like God who can see the individual who has harmed us, who's at enmity with us, and can we see the image of God in them and think about them where they could be? That's the question. That's what's on display here in the book of Jonah. Are you, the bride of Christ, going to look at the lost and evil in the world and bypass the image of God in them and reduce them down to what they have done? Or are you going to see them as God once saw you, knowing that he could take you from that and deliver you to so much more? That's the question at Jonah. Don't leave here today the same. Don't walk out that door and pick up old behaviors. Don't do it. God forbid that sin would abound where grace exists. Don't do it. Whenever you're struggling, 
with not seeing the image of God in another human being, read Jonah chapter 4. Wash yourself in the Word of God. Ask Him to change you. Do not leave here today the same person you walked in. God forbid. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for cutting us to the heart with this study on the book of Jonah. Thank you for bringing to our attention the reality that even though you have saved us, you have more in store for us. And then help us to receive that more with willing hearts. To lay aside every weight, Father, that holds us down and slows us down. So that we might focus our attention on you and on you. God, I'm asking that each person in here would find the conviction of the Spirit, not the condemnation of the enemy. And that the conviction of the Spirit would be the catalyst to walk them into the more that you have for all of us. We love you. We thank you for these hard lessons. You are a good Father. Help us in the rest of our day to make much of your name. Amen.